This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash richtakeonsports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash richtakeonsports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 43. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Now, there's an art in being able to paint a picture with words for either radio or TV sports broadcasting. And in this episode, our guest is one of those such artists, and that's longtime play-by-play broadcaster, Ian Eagle. Now, many of you will know Ian from his role each Sunday during the NFL season when he's normally paired up with color analyst Dan Fouts on CBS Sports. But Ian does so much more than that with a broadcasting career that actually started in 1990 as a producer for one of the most famous sports talk radio stations in the nation, WFAN in New York. Now, you can find Ian doing play-by-play for the NBA with the New Jersey Nets, college basketball with CBS Sports and Westwood One. So when Ian and I talked, one of the first things that I wanted to know was what does his year look like in terms of broadcasting duties and how does he keep up with everything? Well, I've I've gotten to a point now in in my career where I'm I'm pretty much in a yearly routine of what's coming up. I know what's next. I know what I have to prepare myself for, and it's fairly simple. It's NFL broadcasting for CBS every Sunday. It's NFL broadcasting for Westwood One Radio on Thursday nights. Then the NBA season starts. I do 53 games for the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Those games are based on my schedule with football and basketball, trying to juggle that. CBS also uh, uses me on college basketball, so I do about eight college basketball games during the season, which usually starts in January, right up into the NCAA tournament. I've been doing the NCAA tournament for the last 20 years. First weekend for CBS, second weekend for Westwood One. Uh, After the NCAA tournament, I wrap up the net season, and over the last uh, eight years or so, I've worked the playoffs for Turner, whether it was NBA TV and now in more recent years, it's been TNT. So that's usually about a month of my time from uh, the start of May towards the end of May, late April into late May, and from there, I... I go to Paris. I do the French Open for Tennis Channel. Done that for the last 11 years. And when I get back in early June, other than some voiceovers here and there for the NBA and some other smaller assignments, I can usually shut it down. And I do. I've actually gotten very good at shutting it down and and not not doing a whole lot during a five-week stretch. I can build my entire day around picking up dry cleaning and still have a very uh, productive 
an enjoyable summer day. That's, that's how I've attacked it. That's how uh, my family has come to know me. I'm completely committed, fully immersed for all those months, but for about a five-week stretch, my ability to turn off the battery has, has even surprised me at times. So how do you do that? How do you turn off the battery? Because I know you have to prepare for all of these things that you're doing. Is it difficult for you to do that? Yeah, I found it very hard uh, the first few years uh, of trying to do that because my mindset was always go, 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 and try to accrue as much information and as much uh, factual nuggets that you can so that when needed and when you have to call upon them over the course of a broadcast year, they're readily available. What I've done the last few years is just tried to turn off my brain a little bit. I realized that I probably had some information overload. And because of that, I, uh, I, I just knew I had to, to take some, some steps towards preserving and uh, trying to quiet my brain down. So I'd say the last two years in particular, uh, I've, I've achieved it. I've, I've found some balance and uh, it's a little different than what I was accustomed to for the first 20 years of my career when I was just always on. I was locking myself in my office and doing everything that I could to stay engaged at every moment that I was awake. And what I've done is just made a slight adjustment and it's, it's helped me immensely. It's helped me on, on so many different levels and just mental health and feeling good and physical health, working out more during the summer and trying to get that part of my, my life in balance. So, I think I found the antidote and, and I've, I've tried to, to follow that path now, but it's, it's fluid. It's evolving. Uh, you've got to figure out what works for you. And I would never say this is how it has to be done. I think everybody's got a different method on how they approach life. And, and my methodology is, is still in the development phase, even at 48 years old. Well, you've definitely got a drive that a lot of people don't have. And so let's walk back to your earliest memories of sports and you know, how sports became important to your life as a kid. Yeah, earliest memories, uh, definitely an escape for me. Uh, parents were divorced. Uh, parents were very busy. They were entertainers. That meant a lot of days on the road. That meant time spent with people that were not my parents, whether it was people that they hired to take care of me or if it was uh, my father's first wife. It was uh, an interesting relationship that he felt a trust with her that she could watch me and, and stay with me over, over not just weekends, but sometimes weeks at a time. And he had two daughters with his first wife, so obviously there was still a bond of, of some sort. But uh, it was based on finding something else, trying to, to latch on to something that, that was mine. And sports became an oasis in many ways. Uh, I, I just loved the personalities behind it. I loved studying the personalities, the backgrounds of the players. It was baseball first when I was growing up in the 70s, and that just meant... Uh, throwing myself into baseball encyclopedia, baseball digest, stats, figures, 
history, you name it, uh, that, that was a panacea for me. And then began to branch out into other sports, obviously playing sports as a kid, a little league and basketball leagues and tennis. Uh, those were, those were big, big uh, parts of my youth, but with an eye towards something else, I had a gift for gab because my parents were in entertainment. I was not intimidated by the idea of performing. That was never an issue. My mom was a singer. My father was a stand-up comedian, an actor, a musician. So even getting up on stage, they would do their thing. And sometimes at the end of their act would bring me up and I would do impressions. I would do some jokes and sometimes in front of as many as a uh, thousand or 1200 people. It just didn't dawn on me that, that something like that would make you uncomfortable. So in doing that and, and marrying all of these interests, I, I told my, my father at a young age that I wanted to be a sports broadcaster and uh, he was encouraging. He, he didn't, he didn't laugh. He didn't scoff. Uh, he didn't question it. He said, well, that's what you'll do. And when you get that kind of confidence and an influx of confidence at that young age, it's very empowering because I convinced myself at, at seven or eight years old that I was going to do this, even though I didn't really do much about it. There wasn't an option for me to do anything like this in high school. Internet didn't exist. So there was no broadcasting from home other than sitting in your room and turning the sound down and calling play by play on games that you were watching or setting up baseball cards on your bed and, and going a full nine innings with those baseball cards, switching sides and placing them on the parts of the field that you visualized. That was it. I, I got to college. I went to Syracuse with the idea that I would do this, but again, had not ever done it just a blind faith and, and maybe a little bit of naivete that it would happen for me. And when I got there, I got serious about it and I did do everything in my power to get experience, uh, radio stations, TV, internships, uh, you name it. I did it. And I went there because of the reputation. And I went there also because they were appealing to a lot of young people that had an aptitude for it. And I was competitive and I wanted to see where I fit in amongst all the others that decided to show up at Syracuse as a freshman in 1986. And what I learned was I, I could stand out. I could do this. I had an ability for it. I just had to polish it. And then I had to get out of the workforce and, and make a name for myself. Now, did you have any mentors at Syracuse that helped you polish your craft? Yeah, the, the main mentor was uh, a guy by the name of Mike Tarico, who uh, I think you may have heard of. We met my sophomore year. He was out covering a high school football game for the local CBS affiliate in Homer, New York. And I was with uh, a very close friend of mine at the time, uh, David Fleischer, who unfortunately passed away about a year ago. He and I uh, both had a passion for, for this. And I was standing there in fairly cold temperatures in late October in Syracuse, or at least the outlining area. And David pointed towards Mike and said, hey, isn't that, isn't that Mike Tarico?" I said, yeah, yeah, I guess that's him. We had seen him on TV, but we didn't know him. He said, well, let's, let's go say hello. 
said, I, I don't want to bother the guy. He's like, hey, <laughs> let's go say hello. It's Mike Tarico. Who's this guy? He's, he's just a local guy on, on the news. So we walk on over and, and David introduces himself. And then I introduced myself and said, oh, where are you guys from? David said, I'm from Chicago, Highland Park. I said, oh, I'm from, from Queens, from Forest Hills. He says, oh. I'm, I'm from Bayside, which was only a couple of towns over, literally a 10-minute a, a ride from where I grew up. So we started talking, and we realized that we had a lot in common. And he said to both of us, hey, if you ever want to help out around the TV station, uh, I'd love to have you. I'm looking looking for help. So both of us became interns for Mike Tirico, and uh, Mike and I became very close over uh, – three-year period, sophomore, junior, senior year. And that included working with Mike on a radio show that uh, he started once his popularity began to shoot up in the Syracuse area. He had opportunities. He asked me to produce a show. Uh, eventually, uh, I would co-host that show uh, just based on his time commitment and then fill in and host on my own when, when he couldn't do it. And he was someone that I absolutely leaned on for guidance and insight. And as we all know now, uh, Richmond is, is one of the best broadcasters in the world. Uh, at that time, we all knew how talented he was, uh, just didn't know what, what his path would be. And his path turned out to be uh, one for, for well-deserved stardom in this business. So graduated from Syracuse and Maintain the relationship with Mike, who got a job at ESPN, uh, went to Mike's wedding. Mike was at my wedding, and the relationship has, has always been one of understanding, of shared experiences, and a lot of respect on both sides. Uh, obviously, as I've evolved and developed as broadcaster as well, there's been a lot of back and forth through the years, not necessarily long conversations, but just a real keen understanding of what the other one has gone through and been through and the fact that we can relate to one another and relate to our origins and our experiences. So it's been a, it's been a very strong bond for a long time. It definitely sounds like it. And without a doubt, he's one of the best in the business for sure. Now, how did you land at WFAN? I had interned there between my junior and senior year of college, and the station at that point was two years old. So when I was wrapping up my freshman year before my sophomore year, WFAN radio was the first all-sports station in the country. And it was in New York, which made sense because of the, the rabbit fan base. And I thought to myself, wow, that that sounds like maybe the best job ever just to work at a place where all you do is talk <laughs> sports all day. That, that, that felt like the dream that that was the ultimate goal. I didn't even know that that place could exist. So I was fortunate to get an internship there right before my senior year of college. And in doing so was around the culture and was around the early stages of this radio station as they were trying to figure out who they were and build an identity in the marketplace and create some kind of consistency in what fans could expect. I was seeing it firsthand as an intern. You never quite know what the experience is going to be. There could be days where 
there's nothing going on and there could be days where they require your services and you better be ready to go. At that time, it was either cutting tape in the newsroom, doing research, uh, helping a producer with a project, helping a anchor or on-air host with information, whatever it might be. Uh, there was no guideline. There was certainly no book that told you how to do it. You just had to feel your way through it, had to have a way with people, and then also had to recognize the moment when it might be your time. So I, I remember the, the experience uh, being very uh, inconsistent in that there weren't always days where there was a lot going on and you were just sitting in the corner and I decided, well, I got to make those productive days. So they had a uh, collection of media guides from every sport, all four major sports. Uh, this is again, pre-internet where the information was so readily available. And I just decided, all right, I'm going to read through every one of those media guides, every one. And not just to, to study all of the athletes backgrounds, but I made a, a very conscious decision to study the backgrounds and the stories behind all the broadcasters, every play-by-play guy in the four major sports. I wanted to know where they started, what school they went to, their first job out of college. And I don't know what, what really drew me to that other than I had a lot of idle time and I had a curiosity for how all of this works. And I thought to myself, if I want to be in this business, I better know how others have been successful and try to understand what path they took to get there. So that's what I started doing so over the course of the summer when there was downtime and there was a lot of downtime uh, that that would be my personal assignment. I didn't tell anybody about it. I just did it. I would take out the uh, the media guide from the Pittsburgh Pirates or from the Boston Celtics or from the Chicago Bears. And I would go to that broadcaster page and study up and try to construct in my own mind how this was going to work for me one day. I was fortunate enough to get a job offer when I graduated at WFAN Radio as a producer. I had a couple of on-air opportunities in Buffalo and in West Virginia, and I wanted to be on the air, but I thought the potential of working at FAN was too great to pass on. Chance to come back home to New York and to work at the radio station that I dreamed of one day being at on a full-time basis, it was too good uh, an offer. And financially it wasn't, but <laughs> career-wise it was. It made all the sense in the world to me at the time. And again, I look back on it and think to myself, did I know what I was doing? Did I really have a plan? Or uh, was there something uh, of some other order working here. The, the radio gods were looking down on me and saying, Hey, go do this. You'll benefit. And I did. I really did. Uh, looking back on it, it was, it was like going to graduate school and learning how to be a professional in this business. It, it's, it's that simple. I learned so much and, and so much of what I do today is still based on my experiences at, at the radio station. And, and I was a true product of that environment. I was the first 
intern ever to get on the air at WFAN, even though they told me, don't take this job if you want to be on the air. It's not going to happen for you. I took the job anyway and waited my turn and took advantage of the opportunity when when it popped up. So you never had any type of specific plan. I want to be on the air by this date, by this age, and I want to be doing these type of sports. None of that. It was more of just a feel that this just feels right at WFAN to take this job, even though it's going to be a producing job. Yeah, I always had a lot of confidence, Richmond, that I, I would be able to do it. I always had a conviction that it would happen for me. I just didn't know exactly how. The The way that uh, typically people will, will view it is, yeah, I'll give myself a year at this, or I'll give myself 18 months, and if it doesn't happen, then I'm just walking out the door and, and starting new somewhere else. I didn't see it that way. I, I viewed it more through the prism of, hey, this is where I ultimately want to work. If the goal was to get to New York and somebody's giving me a chance to be there, even in the role that I didn't anticipate or covet, then I'm not viewing this the right way if I don't take this job. To say that I can guarantee if I go to West Virginia, I'll work my way up to Pittsburgh, and then in Pittsburgh, someone will notice me and eventually say, you got to come back to New York to your hometown. That's asking now for others to to somehow figure out my path. Same deal in Buffalo. Maybe I go to Buffalo, I love it there, and that just becomes my life. And I look back 30 years later and say, well, why didn't I at least try in New York? And that's how I saw it. That that was in the simplest form, the way that that I tried to, to forecast forward. If I want to be in New York and they're asking me to take a job in New York, why wouldn't I take the job? The other stuff I can figure out as I go. And I had enough confidence in myself that I could prove my, myself if given a chance. I just needed a chance. But I didn't push it. I didn't go into work every day and, and tell the powers that be that I wasn't happy with what I was doing and that I actually wanted to do something else. People figured it out. And I think there was also a trust that was developing between me and, and those decision makers that they believed in me. Uh, there were people there that, that took a liking to me and also had a, a real belief in what I could do as, as a broadcaster. So as I look back on it now, it makes perfect sense, but it was risky. There were no guarantees. Nobody guaranteed me anything. All they guaranteed me was a $20,000 job to be a producer from seven to midnight in 1990. That's, that's the only guarantee. And that, even that wasn't guaranteed. <laughs> they could pull the plug on that at any moment if they decided that I wasn't doing my job well. And you get there at, again, the beginning of Sports Talk Radio, in, in essence, the genesis. And obviously with Mike and the Mad Dog, and it's well documented on the 30 for 30. So what was that like in that type of environment? Yeah, it was a really dynamic time for the radio station because the first couple of years, they were gaining a little bit of traction. You could feel it in New York, but uh, the audience was still pretty niche oriented. By 1990, when I got there full time, I was there in 89 as an intern. 
from 1990 over the next few years to 93, you could feel the shift. The radio station was having a bigger impact than anyone could have ever anticipated. And there was a change in, in the way that New Yorkers were consuming sports. The New York Post, the New York Daily News, uh, they were behemoths. But newspapers were starting to feel the crunch of, wait a second, I'm a sports fan. I don't have to wait until the next day to get the information. I can get it right away and I can interact. So you had the people that were so into it that they could pick up the phone and call. And that was, that was still a new concept. There were shows that, that uh, had been created prior to FAN's uh, launch, but never 24 seven when <laughs> at three in the morning, if you were still ticked off at, at Buddy Harrelson's decision or Jeff Torborg's decision, uh, on who to pitch in the eighth inning of an important Met game. Now you could actually share your opinion. So I could feel it. I was young. I was from New York. I graduated college at 21 and I started three days later at FAN graduated on May the 10th. I was working at WFAN on May 13th. There was no backpacking through Europe. There was no hanging out <laughs> with friends for the summer until I figured out what I wanted to do. They had held the job for me for about two months. So I knew that I was expected to get in there and to do my job well. Uh, the learning curve was not really a concern for me and, and for my coworkers and my superiors. Get in there, immerse yourself in the culture, and do a, a quality job. I was producing for Howie Rose, who's now the play-by-play man for the New York Mets, and how it was demanding. So it kept me on my toes. Uh, this was not a case of uh, just lollygag your way through it and fake it till you make it. Like you had to make it. it. It wasn't, it wasn't an option. And in looking back on it, even though I wasn't doing on air stuff uh, throughout that time period, uh, I got on the air officially the first time September of 1991. I had covered some events some devil's games some Nets games, in my first year there. So I was on the air doing 20 second voicers from, from local events, but I got my first update shift in September of 1991. I had started working there in May of 1990. So it took a year and four months, somewhere in that range, about, about 22 months, 23 months, whatever it might've been. And I, you know, I thought to myself, this is, ultimately what I want to do. So treat it like it is going to extended school. Even though I wasn't on the air, I was absolutely paying attention to how the on-air announcers did their job, how they prepared, how they handled uh, situations that popped up and how they performed. Uh, I think more than anything else, I realized that that was an area that I needed to, to really improve upon from being a college announcer, a successful college announcer, but now trying to, to make it a career. So despite the fact that I wasn't doing on-air stuff consistently, I still was learning. And I was, 
I was uh, building a, a mental picture of how to do this job once I got my chance. And, and that's how it all played out. And you get your chance play by play with the Nets in 1994. Why didn't you go look at baseball options? It sounds like baseball was more of a love of yours. So why basketball? Yeah, I think it's based on the opportunities and the circumstance. I was moving up the ladder at FAN and I was getting more shifts. I was given the pregame and postgame show for the New York Jets in 1993, which was a high profile position. FAN had gotten the rights to the Jets. And I thought uh, to myself, I wanted to be versatile. I wanted to be able to say yes to whatever offers came my way. And I didn't even think in terms of what sport it was anymore. Uh, Baseball was a passion, and that was what I was working on because I was producing for for the Met games during the summer, 7 to midnight. I was in charge of the radio station at that that time. So that meant that there was a whole lot of baseball, working with Howie on Mets Extra, the pregame show, postgame show. I grew up. Uh, a big, big Mets fan. So the chance to go out to Shea Stadium at the time and uh, experience that part of the business was was really exciting and exhilarating. But I also looked at opportunities. The Jets opportunity came up. I did well with it. I was establishing an identity in the marketplace and my name was getting out there. And I saw in in a local media column from Phil Mustick in the New York Post that the play-by-play man for the Nets was not coming back, Howard David. And I quickly jumped on on the opportunity and had a series of events that went my way that, that led to getting the job. And I never looked back. I had some chances to do baseball through the years. Um, the Mets uh, had a offer, or at least potential offer to do 25, 30 game package when they were still on sports channel. And I was doing net games on sports channel. It was the only time in my life where my wife, who I've known since freshman year of college, looked at me and said, seriously, you're, you're thinking about taking this. I was doing football. I was doing basketball at the time. I had very little time off. We talked about it early in our conversation. And then I certainly at that time had no idea how to turn my brain off or just to just hit the stop button and had a young family and my wife very uh, much understanding the bigger picture said, what are you doing here? This, this actually (laughs) could start to affect your life if you let it. And I, I backed away from it and it was probably the smartest thing I ever did. Uh, There's only so many days in a year and I was already pushing the limits to that and had some chances with the Yankees as well. Uh, but uh, I've, I've never taken anyone up on those offers because uh, I just didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. So basketball became the sport. They gave me a chance at 25 years old to, to be the play by play man of the Nets. I got the TV job the next year and obviously added college basketball duties a couple of years after that with the NCAA tournament and haven't looked back. Now, what do you enjoy more, pro basketball or college basketball? Yeah, they're so different, uh, Richmond, in approach and even the actual calling of the game. I've done so many NBA games in my career. I've now done 23 years of the NBA, and you throw playoffs in there as well. You're talking about thousands of games. 
thousands. And it's it's definitely in my blood because of that. First play-by-play job that I got was a basketball job, so uh, it's it's just part of who I am. College, you recognize that the games mean so much to the players involved. For many of them, this is the highest level of competition they'll, they'll ever play in. And the fans, there is something about going into Lawrence, Kansas, or going down to Duke and sitting there calling a game and feeling the energy of the crowd and, and feeling that, that vibration, literally the vibration in the stands at, at fog. So I recognize that while you're still doing basketball, the approach is different. Uh, the the rhythm of the game is different. For basketball at the professional level, you're talking about some of the greatest athletes in the world, and the chance that there's something that could happen that you've never seen before, just athletically, because of what these guys are capable of. In college, style of play is different. Uh, the head coaches play such a bigger role in how the game is going to be played. NBA coaches are incredibly impressive. Basketball knowledge, uh, handling egos, juggling. College coaches, they're the CEO in many ways. And because of that, uh, their stamp is is on every single game that they coach. Uh, So as a play-by-play man, you you go in fully aware of that. And the... uh, the back and forth of a game is just very different. The rhythm of the game is very different. I, I enjoy both for different reasons, and I'm really lucky that I get to call both. So uh, for me, I, I've, I've had the benefit of seeing so many great players come through the college ranks and then call their games in the NBA. Kevin Durant, for whatever reason, is one year at Texas. I had them a bunch of times. And I was thoroughly impressed with him individually, his style of play, and then to see him blossom and develop into the player that he is today. And that's just one of countless examples of guys that I got to see as as young players and then watch them mature once they got to the pro leagues. So who's the best college player you ever saw? (sighs) Man, that's just tough, tough to answer. You name any big time player in the NBA and odds are I probably saw them in college, uh, whether it was during the regular season or calling their games in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Ironically, some of the best guys that I did call uh, did not have memorable moments in the tournament. Duran in particular got upset by USC in the second round of his one year under Rick Barnes at Texas, Chris Paul, one of the best games I've ever worked, West Virginia against Wake Forest, second round in Cleveland, Paul's final game as a college player, double overtime loss. Paul fouled out in that game. And he had the combination of Kevin Pitsnoggle and Mike Ganzi who were making shot after shot after shot for the Mountaineers. So strange to, to look back and, and say that some of the legitimate superstars of today uh, were not guys that went on these incredible runs in the NCAA tournament. It's a reminder, and considering your background, Richmond, that it is a team sport, that it isn't just one individual. Just because you have the best player on the court 
doesn't mean that you're going to win that game and then win the next one and the next one and the next one to win an NCAA championship. But you know, Carmelo Anthony's year at Syracuse uh, called a couple of their games and being a Syracuse guy to watch that run come to uh, a, a head and lead to a national championship for Jim Beheim and the Orange, that, that was pretty special. But to choose and pick one particular guy that I called their games at the collegiate level and say this was the best one, there have been so many. Truly, you name it, of, of all the, the big-time players in the NBA now, uh, odds are I, I probably called a, a college game of theirs or two over the course of their careers. Now, how difficult is it to separate your emotions when you're calling a game? For example, you're calling a Syracuse game and they're on this magical run to a national championship. Yeah, not tough at all. Somewhere along the line, not to say I'm, I'm not a fan, but I'm not what I once was. I, I knew that something had to change. And when, at least for me, it was pretty straightforward. You do the game, they pay you, you pay your mortgage. Uh, the the equation <laughs> it's life. apparent. Yeah, be professional. Uh, do your job well so that you can pay your mortgage the next month. Don't get caught up in the speed bumps that could affect your performance. So my view is, has always been, I root for a, a quality game. You want a fantastic finish. You want some kind of memorable, indelible moment if possible, which doesn't happen very often, but the hope is that you've got the headset on when it does. And that's really where my rooting interest is. It, it's not for particular teams or particular players or particular people. We're human. So, of course, people you meet along the way, people that come in and out of your life, you root for them as people and as a friend to do well. But when the headset is on, I can tell you unequivocally that the only thing that um, I'm truly hoping for is a competitive environment and uh, a great ending. That's what every broadcaster wants, a great ending. So how difficult is that and frustrating when it's a blowout and you're having to make conversation almost um, because the game is out of control and there's really not a lot of interest or the team is bad? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've experienced a lot of that. I haven't done the nets for so many years. There were some serious down years with the franchise and that's kind of all I knew. I worked with Bill Raftery when I started my TV career and Bill is the best. And I don't say that to be hyperbolic. I, I say it because it's true. And it was probably the best thing to ever happen to me being paired with him first of all, from a friendship standpoint, but secondly, from a professional standpoint, because he and I would do these games and we didn't know how many people were watching. We didn't think about that. We didn't care about the number, the size of the audience. We cared about being entertaining and being informative. And it wasn't anything we ever discussed. It was our natural discourse that uh, we had off the air that carried over on the air. I think people can figure that out. Viewers can sense when it's real, when it's organic. And with us, it was always real. It was a true friendship and a lot of ribbing, but playfully, never personally and, and never maliciously. And I think 
fans are attracted to that. They're attracted to real conversations. And that's what Bill and I would have on the air. So despite the fact that they weren't winning a whole lot of games, Bill and I still approached every broadcast like it was important and that it was our job to keep it moving and to stimulate conversation, which was always very easy. He's a conversationalist by nature. And because of the dynamic of our relationship, we were never at a loss for words. And even in blowout situations, Richmond, we sometimes had our best broadcasts because something that we never even anticipated would pop up or a subject matter or a topic or a reaction to a play or a series of plays, making one another laugh and sharing that with the audience, not in an inside way where it was just the two of us, where everybody could relate and share. So that was excellent training without even knowing it at the time that I would carry with me for my whole career. Uh, You actually earn your money more when the games aren't very good because that's when it's your job to, to make the event better than it really is. And that's been part of my thought process uh, throughout my 20 plus years of, of doing play by play. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the best ones keep you into the game when it's a blowout. And so I, I would agree yep. with you on, you know, from that perspective. So now what about TV broadcast versus a radio play by play? How different is that? Very different in approach. TV games is such a collaborative process, and there is a general feeling after you're done with a two-and-a-half-hour basketball broadcast or a three-hour and ten-minute football broadcast of, wow, we just pulled that off. We just made that happen. If the director wasn't on the same page with the producer and the producer wasn't on the same page with the audio guy, the audio guy wasn't on the same page with the sound mixer in the booth. And if the sound mixer in the booth wasn't on the same page as the play-by-play announcer, and the play-by-play announcer isn't on the same page as the analyst, and the analyst isn't on the same page as the sideline reporter, and it goes round and round. If, if you don't have that kinship, if you don't have that team mentality, something will go wrong, uh, seriously go wrong on a television broadcast. So there really is a feeling of of family and unity. On radio, it's a smaller group, but much of the responsibility is on the play-by-play person. It's a blank canvas. The fans that are driving in their cars or listening on their deck or checking it out through an app and listening on their phone, they are looking to towards you to be the guide. And that means you better paint the word picture. And if you're not, then you're not doing your job well. In television as a play-by-play announcer, the goal is don't get in the way. Compliment, enhance, put a period on the end of things, punctuate when necessary. In radio, it's quite different. It's create the vision for the audience and do that through language, do that through uh, voice and excitement and do that as the conduit. You are the eyes and ears. So if you look at it that way and, and you make a very conscious effort to approach it that way, you can be good at both jobs. It's not easy and there are not a lot of, of play-by-play announcers that do it 
these days. Uh, most either are radio guys or TV guys. And I try to pride myself on, on being good at both without having one suffer where on radio you're not saying enough, so it sounds like a TV call, or when you're on TV you're saying too much and it feels like a radio call. You've got to strike that balance. You've got to absolutely go in with a clear mind of how you're going to do this, and you also have to assess yourself. You can't just take it for granted. You've really... Uh, got to uh, be all in and concentration is is necessary to the fullest whatever whichever event you're assigned what about calling basketball versus football what do you enjoy more i I wouldn't be able to to say i enjoy one more than the other they they bring different aspects of of my style out when i call them basketball uh, there are bursts of energy that take place Uh, You've got to be aware at any moment that something could happen. You can't get caught looking down at your notes because there are no natural stoppage is in the game. You, You have to be on it all the time. Football, there's a very set pace as to how it works. Team huddles up, get the play in, get to the line. The buildup is there and then run the play play ends, give the information, and then allow your analyst to get in and take the replays, analyze the play, or use that time if nothing really happens on the play to give a story or background or strategy, whatever it might be. Uh, football is, is probably the, the greatest television sport because of what I just detailed. It's made for TV. Uh, There's an expectation for the viewer. They know what's coming. Run the play, see the replay, get ready for the next play. Basketball is back and forth and up and down, and the stoppages come on foul calls or timeouts or ball knocked out of bounds, but then boom, quickly, back in, make a substitution, right back to play. So as a play-by-play announcer, it, it challenges different parts of your brain. And I truly enjoy both for different reasons. 75,000 people, the elements on a football game, uh, it's a bird's eye view as opposed to basketball where you're right up against the action courtside. You're seeing the sweat come off uh, these players' bodies. Football, it takes a little bit more theater of the mind uh, to try to, to convey the emotion of the event. And I'm, I'm really fortunate that I, that I get to do both and uh, that the two seasons intersect. So my brain has to be compartmentalized. I can't have LeBron James catching a touchdown for the Cleveland Browns. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be good for my career. But I might have a Cavaliers game on a Friday night and then a Browns game on a Sunday. And it challenges the brain of uh, making sure that, that you're – doing your best and you are on when that red light goes on that you follow suit. I understand. So you mentioned bird's eye view. We know your nickname is bird or bird man, and it makes sense with your last name Eagle, but who gave you that nickname? That's probably up for debate. Bill Raftery called me bird very early on in, uh, 
my Nets tenure, but I think Bob Raceman, New York Daily News media columnist, might have used it in print before Bill ever said it. It, it it's close. It's a it's a tough one, but I think uh, I think it's between those two. It was either Bob or Bill that that first went with it. But Bill will just call me that in lieu of Ian on the air. And it's been funny to, to see reaction the last <laughs> four or five years as I've done more CBS games with Bill. People either don't know the name or they just can't understand Bill, but they think he's saying Vern and that he doesn't know who his partner is next to him. <laughs> and he's never said Vern when, yeah. when I've sat next to him. He, he He's saying Bird. But I get it. People hear what they want to hear, and uh, both he and I find it find it very comical. But uh, Bill will not stop calling me that, and that's not just uh, on the air. That's off the air. That's basically what he calls me uh, on and off the air in everyday life. I'm I'm bird to him, and it works. And he's Raph. I don't know if I call him Bill. I think I just call him Raph. Oh, that's so great. even <laughs> even just thinking about it, that's our relationship. He's Raph. I'm Bird. And if we're going to dinner, uh, that's that's how we address one another. Oh, I love it. Well, another thing that I have as we're getting ready to wrap up here, uh, Ian, is you've done voiceover for video games. How in the world does that work? I've never understood that. Can you tell me how that works? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny. I uh, I got a gig many years ago doing Sony PlayStation's NBA game and ended up doing it for five years it was a great job. I would fly out to San Diego. They would put me up. They were terrific people. And I would take three days in a row to record every possible option that could happen in this game. And it was laborious. Every name, every score, every situation. We had different color commentators. One year it was Bill Walton. Another year it was Mark Jackson. So we bounced around a little bit with the analyst role. And with the popularity of NBA 2K, uh, eventually the Sony game went away. As recently as as earlier this year, I was asked to do the voice on on a new video game called NBA Playgrounds, which is very cool. It, it's kind of more the arcade style. Uh, if if you have some listeners out there that that used to play NBA Jam through the years, uh, it, it's similar to that. And the voiceover for that was uh, not nearly as exhausting, but still a lot of hours and uh, you just have to have the essence of you come through. So that's been my approach uh, with that. Uh, you're, you're trying to be as natural as possible. It's a lot of recording time and the finished product is, is pretty cool for a kid that grew up, playing a lot of video games, whether it was Atari or in television or ColecoVision at the time, and then spending just gobs of money on video games at the local store when I grew up in Forest Hills, uh, I, I appreciate and I don't, I don't take for granted the irony that, that I was involved in some way and how cool that is to to be the voice of of a video game it's it's been a fun little side venture and, and i think it, it may continue with uh, some of these games that uh, are now starting to pop up that try to blend the old with the new 
I think it's fascinating because I can only imagine how laborious that must be to have to do all of those recordings. And those are some great blasts from the past that you mentioned with those games. We're, some, we're from the same generation, so I remember those yeah. vividly. <laughs> That's for sure. Now, there's been a lot of talk and um, things going on in broadcasting just with a lot of news with like ESPN, with layoffs and just what their growth looks like and other networks trying to compete. What's your thoughts? Can any other network compete with ESPN? Yeah, I think sports fans' appetites are so large. And the world we live in now where DVRs and on-demand video is at our fingertips, there's still something about a sporting event that you can't recreate or simulate. You don't know the outcome and you can't tape it. I mean, you can, but you're going to know the the result before you ever show up. If you're a real sports fan, it's going to pop up on your phone. Your friend's going to text you. Uh, you're going to hear it on a news report, whatever it might be. Uh, if you pick any team, if you're a huge fan of that team, more often than not, you've got to consume it live. You've got to watch it live. Maybe you you put it on your DVR and you watch it just after it ended. So uh, for some people, they don't have to watch the commercials. They can plow through it and still be productive with uh, their, their Saturday afternoon or their Sunday afternoon. With that said, there's a reason why the, the rights fees have continued to skyrocket uh, because it's at a premium. You have people's attention. It's, it's something that, uh, I don't think we'll ever stop. Now, the numbers may hit a crescendo at some point, but there's a reason why all of these networks are interested in live sporting events. Uh, ESPN, the timing was perfect. Our society was ready for it. And they did really outstanding work, uh, truly, to go wall to wall the way that they have. But like anything in life, there's gonna be competition. And I think ESPN has started to taste some of that competition. And uh, I'm not going to pretend to know the numbers aspect of it. I don't. I don't know the financial part of what number finally is too high. And you can't make money for your company. Other people, are, uh, our backgrounds are, are in that. So that's their job to figure it out. I think the sports fan is in a great position that they still have live sporting events at their disposal and the productions are impressive and high tech and cutting edge. It's, it's hard to rip somebody off their couch now and, and tell them to go to a sporting event because on television, the pictures are so good. The replays are so good. The productions are so good. With that said, uh, if you're a sports fan, there's still the thrill of being at an event. Uh, you can't duplicate that feeling. So uh, I think sports fans are in pretty good shape, Richmond, no matter what happens here from this point on with rights fees and who's jumping into the fray, whether it be Internet companies that get involved. Uh, I, I think we've gotten to a point now where there's an expectation level for every production and if it doesn't meet that expectation level, you're going to hear about it from the fans. Fans have a means in which to share their opinion. 
and to voice their concerns like never before. That's right. And I agree with you that the technology is helping people be able to watch these events in their home. And also, I think there's a proliferation of talented individuals like yourself, play-by-play and broadcasters that even enhances that situation of staying at home rather than going to a live event. Yeah. I Now we're finally wrapping up. How would you sum up what sports has meant in your life? Well, for me, it was a passion that I was able to turn into a career. And the way that that I've tried to to look at this, and I would give this advice to anybody, and not just related to sports, but to any any walk of life. If you want to do something, you have to be fully committed, and you have to do it with a love and a passion and a, a real, true uh, feeling of of admiration. You can't be half-hearted. You can't stick your toe in the pool. You have to jump in. And in doing that, in trying to to make a career out of this, I've always tried to put a part of myself in it. I'm not trying to play the part of a broadcaster. I'm not trying to act like a play-by-play man. The lines at some point blur. And for me... Fortunately, it was pretty early in my career where I I realized that I, I could do this and I could do this at a high level and I had something to offer and I had something different and something unique. And I didn't shout it from the rooftops. I didn't tweet it out. I just did it. I, I put my head down and did it. And I, I've always looked at myself as a grinder, someone that's going to grind their way through these things. And I think people can sense that and can feel that. And that's true with anyone. If you're going to your local bank to to take care of your account, if the person helping you is doing it with a smile and is doing it with, with a real love for what they do, you feel that. You feel that. You feel that at a restaurant. You feel that at a movie theater. You feel that in every walk of life. I try to put good into the world. I, I don't deal with negativity. I don't deal with, uh, with, oh, that should have been me. That could have been me. I don't deal with, with those kinds of emotions. I deal with positive emotions and I feel as if that comes back and works in your favor in life. Uh, You put good out there, good will come back. You put negative, uh, unfortunately, oftentimes uh, you're going to get the same back. Now, have there been any words of wisdom that have helped you maintain that positive outlook? I, I just had a, a very different upbringing. And my father, who passed away 10 years ago, uh, was such a huge influence in my life. Uh, he experienced success and varying levels of it, but really didn't achieve his greatest success until later in his life, until he hit 50 And I still saw the same positive attitude, the way he treated people, uh, the, the work ethic was always the same. It never waned. It, it never suffered. Even when the, the gig he was working may not have been uh, the biggest, it was still the same performance and effort. And 
I think subconsciously I, I just grabbed that as part of who I was going to be, whether I knew it or not. So if it's a Nets-Sacramento Kings game on a random Tuesday in February, it's the same effort for me as Duke and Butler in the national championship game in Indianapolis or uh, the Ravens and the Steelers in a playoff game on uh, a cold January Sunday early evening. I, I just I don't look at things based on how many people are watching or how much buildup or hype has there been with this event. And I think that just came from, from my dad. Treat everything with respect. Treat people with respect. And you'll get respect. That's, that's a pretty simple premise when you think about it. Uh, for me, uh, I'm not trying to play a nice guy or be nice to people. I think it's more of just a natural approach to life. And if it's natural, then you don't have to worry that you pissed someone off or that you uh, maybe didn't give this person the time of day. If you're consistent in who you are, then you don't really have to think about silly stuff like that. That just monopolizes your time. I, I don't, I don't get caught up in, in any of those kinds of feelings because I know I'm treating people the right way. Now, it's easy to see that Ian is a very busy man from all of his broadcasting responsibilities, but he's someone who truly understands now how important balance is in his life and how he focuses on that and how he's very intentional about seeking that balance. Now, he put in all of the hard work, as he mentioned, that he's a self-described grinder. And, you know, that's what we see a lot of in sports. There's only a very small percentage of athletes that are far superior than anyone else on the court or on the field. And so many of them are truly these grinders that just go out and work hard each and every day as they're very diligent and dedicated to perfect their craft. And Ian has definitely been able to do that. And it's amazing how that at an early age, he knew he wanted to be a sports broadcaster and how empowering it was to him to hear his dad say, well, that's what you're going to do. And so it just reinforces the power of positive thinking, the power of positive reinforcement, and just how impactful that can be to someone's dreams, and especially if it comes from a father. Now that finishes episode 43, and remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.